Father, we are constantly reminded in the Word of God of your faithfulness, of your love, of your mercy, of your grace. Father, we know that in the world today, the image of God is grossly distorted. Those who would want to present God at all often present you as a tyrant, as someone who is unreasonable or not up to date. And yet, Father, we know that you are the sovereign God of the universe and that we as human beings are so far from the knowledge and wisdom of God that we have no right to open our mouth and to speak against God or to try to describe you in any, in any terms except those which the Scripture give. And so, Father, as we continue to study in the book of Genesis where we see the uh, image of God being slowly uh, propounded to us in the lives of these individuals, I pray, Father, that we will have a correct understanding of who you are and what your plan is for this world, for us as individuals, for your church. Father, I pray that you will remove those distortions and inaccuracies that we may have in our thinking uh, relative to who you are and what it is you are doing, and pray that we will have, Father, that understanding of you which will enable us to be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. Father, we think of, of many in this country today and around the world who uh, are teaching false doctrine. We ask, Lord, that you will um, raise up true prophets in this time to uh, speak forth your word powerfully, that we might see a mighty revival sweeping across this land. Father, there is such great need and so many souls at risk. Father, help us and give us faith. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read again chapter 22, beginning at verse 9. <clears throat> Genesis 22, beginning at verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have, have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, we looked at much of that passage last time, 
And, I, I, you know, I think it's important for us to again note that often statements in Scripture are made in such a way as for us to be able to grasp them, and so they are written what sometimes we call anthropomorphically. And I think that's what is meant here in, in this passage where the Lord is saying that because you have not withheld your son, I now know that you will obey me and that you will give to me everything. And, of course, we have come, I think, in our place, in our walk with the Lord, to know that God is all-knowing. We have a term for that, and it's called omniscience. God knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing that he does not know. He is the source of all wisdom and all knowledge and all truth. And God knows events uh, that are going to happen before they happen, just as the scripture says. When we pray, God knows what we're going to pray for before we even pray. That does not mean, therefore, that we don't need to pray. And so in this passage, it does not mean that by Abraham doing this, he finally proved to God's satisfaction that he really loved God. God already knew that. So what we're really discovering here is that Abraham finally knew that, and Isaac finally knew that, and all of those who would read this passage from this moment on and who heard this word proclaimed before it was even put in print or in writing would know this to be true. And I think we need to understand it from that perspective. Uh, when God puts us through a trial, it's not to discover whether we will survive the trial, whether we will become more faithful or not. God knows that already. But it's for us to prove to ourselves that we truly are God's uh, servants and for those around us to see what it means for us to be thoroughly committed uh, to the Lord. It seems like an extreme trial, does it not? And uh, we emphasized this before. It's probably as difficult a trial as anybody has ever been put through uh, as you consider the details of, of this. But of course, again, the, the thing that keeps ringing true from this passage is the picture. The picture we have of the substitutionary death of Christ. As the ram became the substitute for Isaac, so Christ is our substitute on the cross, and we are thus saved from eternal damnation by the work which he has done on the cross. As a result of this particular event, which occurred on the top of Mount Moriah, we have the promise repeated there in the latter part of this passage where God says, I swear by myself, because there's no one higher by whom God can swear, uh, that he will indeed greatly bless Abraham and multiply his seed as the sand of the seashore, and his seed would possess the gate of their enemies. This promise is made probably 40 years after God made the initial promise that we read about clear back in the 12th chapter of Genesis, where God said, I will give to you a seed, and out of you will arise a great nation. And God is renewing that promise, and I noted at the end of class last time, each time that he renewed that promise, and he did it several times before we get to this particular instance here in this chapter. Uh, Abraham would father a great nation, and all of the nations of the world would be blessed through that nation. 
And you and I are well aware of the fact, because of the statements made in the New Testament, that that blessing, of course, came through Christ. And we didn't have time to turn to it, and I just made reference to it, but let me just uh, read that verse that I have on the outline there. In Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Anytime we really want to know what the Old Testament is specifically saying, we often find a New Testament statement that makes it as clear as a bell what the point was. And so Paul does here in his letter to the Galatians. Uh, it, It wasn't in this fact that, oh, Jacob and Joseph and Levi and Simeon and all of these would be a great blessing, or or their descendants, but in the Messiah who would come through the line, that is the great blessing. And we know that the Hebrew nation has uh, often been looked upon as not a blessing, but a curse, and how much that nation has been persecuted down through the centuries since the time of the death of Christ, particularly, and is still the object of persecution. I mean, the very fact today that in the very country where the Holocaust uh, was at least uh, perpetrated, you've got new signs of this happening is something that makes you want to give up on the human race, you know. (laughs) Do we ever learn? Well, without Christ, no. And even with Christ, sometimes, (laughs) sometimes we need to relearn the lessons, don't we? And that's why there's so many of them in here over and over again. But, you know, it's really discouraging uh, to think of, of, of these things resurfacing again. But it's the way it's always been. And it really becomes, a, a to me, uh, the axe at the root of, of the concept that human beings are evolving to a higher and higher level. And that's the most stupid idea when you think about it, that throughout the 20th century, mankind has been proving... <laughs> Uh, that is not an improving race, uh, that without God there is no hope for this, for this, um, this world. You know, think about it for a moment. Rather than, uh, we, we talk about the fear of a world government, and I suppose this, this is something that Scripture seems to indicate in the end times, but what is happening around the world? We're having a balkanization rather than uh, of moving towards a one-world people uh, we're having, you know, Czechoslovakia splits up into the Czech Republic and the Slovakian Republic, and, and Yugoslavia splits up, and now they want to carve Bosnia, which is just a little dinky place to start with, into ten independent entities. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, you could end up carving California into 58 different countries and the size of our counties, you know, and it, it really becomes absurd, but that's the way human thinking ultimately leads. Uh, without Christ, without God. Now, Abraham, of course, continues to serve as a very, very powerful example to us. And what we find specifically in this passage in chapter 22 is that his specific obedience brought from God a specific blessing. Not just the general blessing that we find where the scripture says God sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. No, we have now, it seems, adequate water in California, and that is a blessing. But it's not just blessing us as Christians, it's blessing everybody. 
uh, whether they give credit to God or not. But specific blessing, where the finger of God is obviously there on the life of the individual, this comes often as a result of specific obedience. And, of course, it means that if we want God's special blessing, if we want God to hear our prayer and to touch this need in our lives, we need to be specifically obedient to God and not just generically obedient in the sense that we're not out in the streets raping and murdering uh, and, uh, you know, we're not out uh, trying to uh, perform pigeon drops on, on unsuspecting people or, or anything else. But it means that we're specifically walking in the light that God has put before us. It means that we're actively searching and seeking to discover what God's plan and will is for us. What is he saying to us? We're not just sitting back on our duff and wondering, well, when's God going to tell me what to do next? We're looking for what God is trying to tell us. And of course, the primary way, place that we look for it is in here, because this is where God tells us what he wants us to do, both in a general sense and in the specific sense. So we need to be students of the word, right? As Paul tells us in Timothy, study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that, what, needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. We're living in a country and in a world today where the word of God is being divided, all right, but not very rightly by an awful lot of people. We need to, to learn how to understand it and how to interpret it. We have a lot of cults, as we're well aware of, and some of them, the flag is quite obvious. We know when they come to the door, two at a time, and they're carrying their little satchel, and they want to sell you an Awake magazine, we, we know where to pigeonhole them. But what about these others, uh, individuals who are running around? What about these who are teaching doctrines which just seem to deviate slightly from the truth? At least that's the way it seems to us. What, what about these? Are we aware enough of the Word of God that, we, that the red flag flies, you know, when we hear that? When, when you listen to some preacher on the radio, uh, do, do flags fly when he starts teaching something that really isn't what the Scripture is saying, or are we just kind of, you know, numb about it all, and well, if it's being said by this preacher, it's got to be true, you know. Uh, not everything said from every pulpit is true. In fact, probably in every pulpit of the land, there are words spoken that are not terribly accurate some, from time to time. And, and we need to be well aware of the Word of God so that we can discern what is truth and what is not. If, if we make no serious effort on our part to discern what God is saying to us, or we purposely circumvent what God is saying, we know God is saying this, well, let, let me just pull an example out of the sky. Uh, not out of the sky, out of the Word. Uh, <laughs> you know, Scripture says, be not unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And, and I'm a believer. Let's say I'm a single unbeliever, and there's this lovely little lass over here, but she's not a believer. But, you know, if I marry her, maybe I can make her a believer. So I'm going to just say, well, God didn't really mean that I can't marry because what I want to do, of course, is, is get her to be a Christian, and then there won't be unequal yoking. So I'll go ahead and go around God's word here and, and do this because, you know, the result will be, the, will be okay in the end. That's just one example. There are many ways in which we try to circumvent the Word of God 
in order to do what we want to do without feeling uh, guilt. Psychologists say it's not good for us to feel guilt. But you know, if we're guilty, I, I don't think there's much else you can feel except guilt. Now, obviously, it's not right to feel guilt if we're not guilty. But on the other hand, there is a reality to it. If we don't seek God's specific guidance or we circumvent it, there's no way we can expect God's special blessing. We can't expect God to hear and answer my special prayer for this special need if I'm trying to circumvent God's clear truth or not seeking to know what he wants me to do and to be. Now, sometimes we sing that little chorus, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. But we, and, and, and you know, that's a nice little song. But we must remember that all of those promises of God are conditional. They're all conditional. God isn't saying, I'm going to bless you no matter what you do. God is saying, you want my blessing? Walk in obedience. You walk in obedience, and I will bless you. You walk in disobedience, and then God cannot bless us as he wants to bless us. A good example, at least, that came to my mind from the Old Testament was good old King Saul. We all remember him pretty well, don't we? Let me just read that uh, well-known passage, often quoted, uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel, the great prophet of God, who had the specific blessing of anointing two kings. One anointing didn't turn out so well, but that, of course, wasn't Samuel's fault. I, right. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning at verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, but the people, took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction. What for? To sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. He wanted God's special blessing on him as king. And yet he felt that he could circumvent God's clear word through Samuel. He was to destroy all. None of the animals were to survive. The king was not to survive. And yet he had preserved the king. And of course he put the onus of, of all those animals surviving on the people. Well, the people, what could I do with the people? You know, I just, I'm the king, but I couldn't guess couldn't get the people to do what they were supposed to do. They insisted on keeping some of the animals because they were going to sacrifice them. Oh, you'll be happy about this, Samuel. To the Lord your God. Notice that uh, Samuel is not impressed. And, you know, it tells us something of the character of God. God is not impressed with our religious genuflections and our religious attitudes and our religious actions. God is not impressed at all. 
<laughs> one of those who used to really cut through all the baloney as a preacher was good old, uh, what's his name? Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, McGee, you know, on, on the radio, you've heard him uh, many times. He's still on the radio, lo, he be dead many years. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he used to basically what you would say in certain terminology. I, of course, am not accustomed to what it comes from, but you're calling a spade a spade. And then that's what God does. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, you wanted to do that for me? Well, then I'll just look over that little uh, deviation there. I mean, Sam's words are really strong. To obey is better than sacrifice. Then all the religious activity you could go through, just simply obey. And you'll notice what he, how he uh, compares rebellion. He says, if you're a rebel against the Lord, no matter how small it might seem to be, you might as well be a witch. Because rebellion is as the sin of, of witchcraft. You're as far from God as a rebel as you would be if you were into necromancy and uh, you know, all the rest of the stuff that goes along with witchcraft. Yeah, really, it, that's a shaking thought. Because all of us have had, I, I shouldn't say that, some of us have had uh, close family members who are or have been in a state of rebellion against the Lord. And you think, whoa, you know, this, this puts it pretty tough. And yet, that's what God says. We must not only seek to do God's specific will for our lives, we must seek to know what it is. We should be actively seeking, not waiting for God to hit us with a thunderbolt out of heaven and say, go left here. You know, uh, God should be, we should be aware of his, of his leading in our lives. God desires obedience more than anything else because it's hard, I guess, for us to really grasp how much God really wants to bless us. God wants to bless us. God just simply wants to pour out blessing on us more than we can even contain, but our own sin keeps him from being able to do that. And our disobedience and, and our, our uh, spiritual senility, if you will, the fact that we're not really seeking to know what he wants us to do. We just kind of relax in, in the comfort of our lives and forget that we're to be actively about the Father's business. Because you see, if he, and you're well aware of this, I'm sure, if God blesses us specially, and he gives us this, this clear blessing in our lives, while we're walking in disobedience, God is in effect condoning our disobedience, and God will not do that. God is a merciful God. And the instant we repent, God blesses and, and God erases it. But while we're still walking in it, God is not going to give us that special blessing. And many times we don't see answers to very specific prayers because we are not specifically obeying God. We think just because we go to church on Sunday and uh, we call ourselves Christians and we go to the uh, you know, we're on the church's baseball team or something or other, that uh, God ought to bless us. But he looks at our hearts. 
individually, he looks at our hearts. And he knows whether we're obedient, whether we have an attitude of obedience, whether our desires to serve him or not. And that's why God is so pours out such blessing in Abraham, because Abraham's heart was true before God. And he wanted to obey God above everything else, and that's why he was willing to even sacrifice his own son, knowing, as Hebrews tells us, that God would even raise him from the dead if that was necessary, because God would <coughs> fulfill his promise. Abraham, as a result of this, is called the friend of God. You know, we can be a child of God without actually being a friend of God. You and I may have children who are not our friends. It's a really, it's a wonderful blessing when your ch children grow up and become your friend, become your close friend. But the one does not necessarily equate the other. And we well know that children sometimes grow, grow up and become the enemy of their parents, and the hatred is, is, is long-lasting. Now, I don't think we can be a child of God and hate God, but we can be a child of God and be acting in a rebellious way. Jesus made this very clear, and I'll just uh, turn to the verse in John 15 uh, and, and read it. just a short little statement that the Lord makes here. Uh, he simply says, you are my friends. Does he say after that, if you believe in me or if you use my name? No. He says, if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And that's what happened to Abraham. He obeyed, thus he was a friend of God. It wasn't just a, a verbal protestation. It was an action that proved the, the validity of his verbal protestation. Back in Genesis 22, when you get down to verse 19 in that passage, we discover that uh, Abraham and, his, uh, and Isaac returned to the two young men who were waiting with the donkey. Now we could stop and speculate all kinds of things upon what those two young men did in the hours that Abraham and uh, Isaac were gone and, and who were wondering what in the world really was going on and why couldn't we go and all the rest of it. Uh, they had no idea of the extent of the drama that occurred up there on the top of Mount Moriah. They had no idea what was happening up there. But Abraham returned with Isaac as he said, I and the young man will return to you. And so he did. And can you imagine the delight that Abraham had telling those two young men what happened up there on that mountain? The joy, the thrill of telling these two young men what God did up there. And trying to relate to them the concept of substitutionary death. Now obviously, Abraham didn't understand it, I don't think, as much as we can today because we have the whole inspired word of God in our hand, and Abraham didn't have it yet. Christ was not yet born, and Christ had not yet been sacrificed. But he had some concept of substitutionary death because it was lived right out before him there as that uh, lamb died. And of course, they, the whole idea of a sacrifice goes clear back, it seems, to the days of Adam and Eve. And so there's that general idea in this case, it became a living reality, though, 
because that lamb was, was, was substituted for his son as really as, as anything could be. And I think that if you could just picture Abraham and Isaac and these two young men with that donkey marching back towards Beersheba, and I think Abraham kept turning back and looking back up as long as he could still see the top of, Mount, of the mountains of Moriah there. He relived what happened in his mind and rejoiced in what God had done and was constantly remembering the phrase that he had brought forth there on the mountain, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord our provider. The Lord our provider. Now, you know, the Lord is our provider. He is our provider in every sense of the word. But Abraham's concern at this point wasn't that the Lord provided him with, with bread and with friends and, and with a donkey and with flocks. That wasn't his concern. His concern was the Lord was the provider of the substitute. The Lord was the one who provided the, the salvation there for that young man, Isaac. And that's the way we need to constantly think of God. He is our provider. Yes, he meets our every need. Uh, you know, Jesus said, pray each day for your daily bread, and God does provide that. And God provides us strength for this day, and he provides us with a home and a, and a body uh, to fellowship within. But what he provides most above all else is eternal life through Jesus Christ, through the substitutionary death of Christ. And that is the way in which he is our great provider. And these other things just become uh, ancillary blessings. You know, if we kind of run the, the tape back a little uh, for a minute, can you just imagine as he was approaching Mount Moriah before the event, how heavy-hearted Abraham was and lead-footed he was as he marched on towards Mount Moriah, knowing that God had asked him to sacrifice his son, believing in his heart that God would somehow <coughs> redeem this situation, but not knowing how it would happen? And now how lighthearted he was. I mean, he probably almost ran out ahead of the donkey there. I mean, you know, the guy is, what, 115 or whatever he is at this point in time. And he was probably trotting on down, you know, that mountain there. And he was lighthearted and lightfooted and, I don't know, maybe lightheaded too at this particular uh, juncture. But the thrill he had in explaining to Isaac what this all meant. And Isaac, I'm sure, got the point because he was the, the child lying there on the wood looking at that knife in his own father's hand. <laughs> you know, talk about an illustration. Most of us really wouldn't care to have an illustration quite that vivid uh, in our lives, even though every once in a while we do get such a thing. But... The point was driven home to that young man. And he was prepared to become the one who would follow in the footsteps of his father. Oh, he would be 75 before he would inherit, what shall we call it, the patriarchate? <laughs> become the patriarch to replace his father and inherit the whole thing? It must have been. It took 75 years to get Isaac ready. I don't know. But this was a profound experience in his life and drove deeply into his soul the reality of who God was and the meaning of the substitutionary death. And then, I, don't, I, I have a hard time 
I mean, I, I, I don't think I could totally picture what Abraham, how anxious Abraham was to get back and tell Sarah what had happened, to inform her as to all that had transpired up there in that mountain. I mean, certainly she had to have a lot of heavy-heartedness knowing that uh, God had require, required this to happen and, and not really knowing for sure what God would do. I think she, I mean, obviously she was a woman of faith. Uh, but then for Abraham to be able to say, this is what happened and this is what God did and this were, here's the ram and all these things, it must have been a great joy for him to explain this to the one who had been his companion for nearly 90 years. What a wonderful time in his life, her life too. Let's look at uh, verse 20 through 24. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, and Booz, or Buzz, whatever, his brother. <coughs> Uz and Booz, Uz and Buzz. Kemuel, uh, the father of Aram, and Kesed, or Chesed, and Hasol, and Pildash, and Jidlap, and Bethuel. <laughs> okay. Jot those down for, again, for suggestions to your children for naming your grandchildren or your children or whatever. Good old Pildash. <laughs> Call him Pilly for short. <laughs> or Jidlap. <laughs> laugh. Jidlap. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And his concubine, oh good, whose name was Rumah, also bore Tebah, and Geam, and Tehash, and Meaka. Well, you know, you can't criticize them for using the same old names over and over, you know, like Bill and George and Hank and, you know, names like that. Now, this passage is a parenthesis. Sure, certainly, it's probably within this time frame that this news comes to... Uh, to Abraham, but it's really a parenthesis here between 22.19 and 23.1. Just uh, given here to validate Rebekah's lineage. Now, Rebekah's going to become, of course, uh, a key person, not in the next chapter, but in the 24th chapter. She will play a very key role there. And so, uh, the, um, the Lord inspired Moses to place this uh, parenthesis here. Somehow, apparently during this time, Abraham renew, received word concerning his brother, Nahor, whom we can infer he hadn't seen for a half a century. Now, we can only infer that. Scripture is silent about it, so we, we don't know. Let me go back to the 11th chapter of Genesis and just read two, three verses there, beginning at verse 27. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, or Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sari, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. So Nahor, we discover, was brother of Abram. And 
of course, you know, we have some struggle here trying to figure out the birth order. <coughs> Normally, or often in Scripture, the birth order is the, the order in which the names are listed, but not necessarily always. And it's very difficult as you look at this passage, Abram, Nahor, Haran, to say, well, that's the order of their ages because we discover that Haran dies before the other two, long before the other two, way back in Ur of the Chaldees. And it is he who is the father of the wives of his two brothers. So it becomes a little bit uh, interesting here trying to figure out <laughs> What the, it could be that Abram was the youngest of the three brothers, and he's put first because he's the one in, in terms of uh, the events which transpired plays the key role here. Nahor may also have remi remained behind in Ur. The fact that Lot left with Abraham, but Nahor is not listed as leaving with Abraham, may indicate that Nahor remained behind in Ur. Now, he might have later followed uh, to go to Haran because that's, of course, where Rebekah will be living, but we don't know that for sure. Nahor's wife, Milcah, was niece to Nahor and, of course, obviously to Abraham, too. Uh, it's kind of interesting. This passage gives us the names of the sons, eight sons by Milcah, and uh, four sons by Nahor's concubine, Ruma. So he has 12 sons. It's interesting how many times 12 shows up you know, in the Old Testament. Now, I think the, the points to, to emphasize about this passage are three. First of all, we find that Nahor, what appears to be his eldest son because he is listed first, is Uz. Now, that is the same name that uh, Shem's grandson bore. He was also called Uz. And it's very possible that this was a specific uh, repeat of that particular name. But not necessarily, because the Hebrew word Uts, U-T-S, or what would be transliterated in English as the U-T-S, uh, from which this word as is thought to come, means to plan or to, or to design. And so, you know, it could just be simply mean a statement that this, this son was planned. And so he was called planned, <laughs> which, uh, you know, saves a lot of trouble when it comes to trying to name your child, if you can think of some specific things like, you know. Uh, it's like Dr. Schaefer's granddaughter was born on St. Patrick's Day, so they could have named her Patricia, you know, or Irish, or I don't know, something like that, green. But uh, they didn't. Now, in, in the book of Job, you remember, and, and we talked about this when we uh, were talking about uh, Shem. Well, let me just read that first verse again so that we're reminded of this. In Job chapter 1, verse 1, it says, There was a man... In the land of Uz, U-Z, whose name was Job, that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. For whom was the land named? I, I suppose it's possible it was named for this man, but probably not likely, because he seems to be too late in time. 
for that name to have been acquired by the land in which Job was born. Because the story of Job seems to be very, very old. Uh, some put it before even the uh, time of Abraham, which is a possibility. Others, of course, place it later. The, question, the, the, the certainty of it all is nobody knows for sure when Job lived. So it's probable that uh, this young man bears the name of his ancestor for whom that land may have been named. More importantly, though, I think from this passage, we have the mention of Bethuel or Bethuel. He's listed last, which we normally could assume and can assume means he was the youngest of the sons of Nahor. Now the name Bethuel means man of God. And he is the father of Rebekah. Now think about it for a moment. Nahor's youngest son, his daughter, marries Abraham's only son. And Abraham and Nahor were brothers. You know, it's kind of interesting to think about the time dis distance difference between the two. This, of course, again reemphasizes how late Isaac was born. Of course, we know um, Abraham was 100 and, and, and Sarah was 90. Uh, so a lot of time had passed and, and Nahor's family had, had grown and, and those young men had married and they were having children. And Rebekah had grown to be old enough to become the wife of his, of her, of her <coughs> granduncle's son. Kind of interesting when you think about that. I wonder how often they thought about that. Did Isaac and Rebecca talk about that much? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a big gap between you and your father, your grandfather, and, and yet your grandfather's brother to my father. Hmm. And then lastly, we have mentioned in this passage uh, a young man by the name of Maaka, last in the list, the son of uh, the concubine. Now, a lot of these names only appear once in Scripture, but this is not true of the name Maaka. Maaka, we discover, becomes the name of a kingdom, of a kingdom in the land of Syria. Let me read from 2 Samuel chapter 10. Now when the sons of Ammon, verse 6, 2 Samuel 10, 6. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth Rehob and the Arameans of Zobah, uh, and, and gives 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men. Now, it's very possible that the Maaka we're talking about here was the father or the ancestor of that kingdom because they were living in Haran, which was in Padan Aram, the land of Aaron, Aram, the land of the Arameans. And it seems that the Arameans were uh, several tribes of people who were related to each other but often had different uh, little kingdoms within this area. And so this Maaka could very well have been the patriarch of that kingdom referred to here in the time of the days of David. 
Now, what is also interesting, though, is that uh, something unusual occurs in the use of this name. Now, I don't know how many times uh, you go through Scripture that you can find that a name originally applied to a man later becomes the name of a woman. In fact, I can't think of very many instances at all. But here we do have an instance. In 2 Samuel 3, 3, we have these words. This is listing David's sons by his wives. And his second son, Kiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And his third son, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, which was another Syrian kingdom up to the north. And so the name Maacah becomes used for women later on in time. And David marries a Maacah, and she is the mother of Absalom. All right, let's move into Genesis chapter 23. I'd like to read the first nine verses to begin with. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, if it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. 127 years Sarah had lived, and Sarah dies. Now, Abraham, remember, is a decade older, so he is 137 at the time that Sarah died. And Isaac is 37. So Isaac has experienced the presence of his mother for 37 years of his life before she dies. Think about it. Uh, certainly, Abraham and Sarah saw at least 100 anniversaries of their marriage and possibly even a few more. Not too many of us have that hope in this life. Uh, most of us feel we've really done something if we achieve 50. And every once in a while you hear of somebody who gets, has 60, and even maybe 70. But in order to have 70 anniversaries of your marriage, you've got to live to be a relatively <clears throat> older type person. You know, even if you're married at 15 and 16, this is, you know, pushes you up there. Not all that bad, I guess, but uh, what, what is it? 75th wedding anniversary, is, is, is that the diamond uh, one? Uh, I wonder how many people today in our society make that one. Probably not too many. But uh, Abraham and Sarah, I think, made probably at least 100. Now, did they count them? 
in those days? I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us whether they uh, counted them. You know, did, a did Abraham on the 100th take her to Niagara Falls to kind of remember their youth? I, I, I doubt it, but uh, maybe he took her to the falls up there near, uh, near Dan. Huh? <laughs> beautiful waterfall up there. It doesn't quite compare to Niagara, but nevertheless, beautiful little waterfall. Now, I think it's important for us to note one thing here. Between Genesis 22, verse 19, and 23, verse 1, is a period of probably about 25 years. Probably pretty close to that, 20, 25 years. Fairly large gap of time. 20 to 25 silent years. Years about which the Scripture says nothing. Doesn't say uh, what, you know, if Abraham had any encounters with God, I, I would suspect that there were no more encounters in the sense of God speaking or appearing to him because if it were so, I think it would have been recorded. But these were years of the growing up of Isaac. What, what happened in Isaac's life during those years? By the time he is 37, I mean, he's obviously a full-fledged adult. It seems that he must have spent those years being trained by Abraham and Sarah in the faith and learning how to herd sheep and goats and cattle. And that probably basically constituted his life. Learning how to, to, to be the CEO, if you will, of Abraham's great <coughs> fortune. Abraham was a very, very rich man. Not many of us will ever have the wealth that Abraham had. But God blessed him. It doesn't mean, however, that the sign of God's blessing, no matter what the Puritans used to say, it doesn't mean that if you're wealthy, that means God's blessing you, and if you're not wealthy, it means God is not blessing you. Uh, the blessing of God is, of course, we know far beyond material acquisitions. But in this case, Abraham was a man of, of great wealth, and God was able to use him in that way. And this, of course, provided the framework from which the 12, into which the 12 patriarchs would, would be born and would give us the contrast between that and then ultimately the condition that developed for them in Egypt. And I think that's, uh, that's an important contrast for us to make. Well, one other thing to note here, I think, is the fact that when we left Abraham and the young men and Isaac off in verse 19 of 22, they were going to Beersheba. And it says Abraham lived at Beersheba. But chapter 23 opens up at Hebron. So in that 20 to 25 years, at some point, Abraham left Beersheba and moved back to Hebron, where he had first moved away in chapter 20 and moved down into the Negev. Why did he make the move? We have no reason given in Scripture. We simply know he made the move, and that's where he was living at the time of Sarah's death. And so we'll pick that up and study those events next week.